Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians made possible by The Village Baxter, The Village Glen and Encore Living for that regional alternative. My name is Paula Dunn and joining me today is Brendan Telfer as Brodie's not well today. Yes, Brodie not well, so thank you very much indeed for having me today, Paula. Good to be back with you in The Age Stage studio and uh, of course thank you to all our buddies that make this possible. Got mm-hmm. an interesting program coming up as well. We're we going to be talking about the budget from a couple of nights ago yes. big implications yeah we'll be speaking to Stuart and peter, peter in just a moment about, about that. that but you've yeah. got some other great stuff as well we have we have alan sheffield who's co-founder of my dna so he'll be joining us to tell us how genetic testing can help us to lose weight um more healthier mm. at, a, at an older age without dubious and some sometimes dangerous side effects indeed well yeah. we, we like the idea of that well let's stay healthy while we lose weight <laughs> and, and, and stay fit and yes. active and then we're going to be talking to um, Dr. Stephanie Hodson. And uh, as we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Kaysan, which always reminds me of um, Jimmy Barnes. Yes, indeed, that's famous. <laughs> yeah, but uh, many of our older vets are still bearing the scars of that battle. So uh, it's an important time to talk about veterans' mental health. And we have Dr. Stephanie Hodson, who's National Manager of the Veterans and Veterans Families Counselling Service, joining us later to do that. We'll, we will indeed. But uh, first of all, I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome uh, Peter Nilsson and Stuart Shaw to the studios because I'm pretty interested in the budget uh, that uh, Mr. Morrison handed down the other night. <laughs> and as we've read, uh, Paula, mm. a lot of implication for us older Australians. Yes, it is. Very interesting times ahead, I think. So, gentlemen, Welcome. How did you see the budget? Well, Brendan, what can one say? It, it almost seemed like Christmas was here at once on, on face value. Well, we, the, the numbers, Stuart, are, are big, aren't they? I they mean, are. if you look at the headlines, $1.6 billion. I mean, it looks like they've seen an issue and they're trying to address it. But yeah, Peter, I, I'm, I, w- I, I would agree. It I, looks I'm, bold and ambitious, does it not? But it had to be, though, didn't it? But is it? Well, that's the question, and that's why There's we're most... There's an old saying, the devil's in the detail. Well, that's why I told mm. Paula at the outset mm. of the program I was most interested in picking mm. your brains today and mm. seeing whether you see it the same way. I mean, yeah. the look, numbers look startling. Yeah. They've certainly tried to, to address some of the issues. It's really pleasing to see more home care places being uh, provided. I mean, put it All in context. Those, Stuart, they've said 14,000. That's a big number. But in the context of there's 105,000 un, uh, what's the word? Un, 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 unallocated packages, and it's 14,000 packages over four years. Well, plus three and a half thousand a year. Yeah, well, plus for six thousand they, they they announced earlier. So let's call it twenty thousand packages. Correct. Certainly, they indicated during the presentation mm. that these were mainly focused on yep. the category four. Yes. So that's pleasing, and apparently there's 50,000 people on that waiting list. Yes. So that waiting list should hopefully halve. But here's a question for you. If we're over four years, do you think in four years' time, bearing in mind we've got an ageing population, is that 105,000 going to grow? This doesn't, in my view, this wouldn't even keep pace with the growth logic of the unmet demand. You, yeah, logic would tell you, yes. based upon the demand that they're going to have to increase that number over time. Seriously. 
But you see, I saw a headline that came out of this where they they dressed it all up the day later and they were saying they're going to be in this area that we're talking about, which is the 14,000 additional home care packages. They're claiming that that's 86% more than are currently available, currently available. But that's nothing to be proud of, though. Well, that's right. But, yeah. Because they're well, what we're doing, that's yeah. right, and we're, we're scrambling to catch up. Yeah, is it, that... it is an incremental step. Yes. It certainly doesn't solve the problem, but mm. at least it's trying to make a dent for the people in highest need. Mm. So, so credit for that um, as a start. But it, it's not going to be sufficient to meet the built-up demand currently or the built-up demand over time as the baby boomers start to come through in the system. Yes. So therein lies the problem. And, and if you look at some of the other budget measures, that, you know, they do talk about trying to keep older people, people healthier. There's, um, there's a, a, a thing there to try and make certain that you, you do try and look after your health. And, uh, and, I, and I think, okay, we're, we're, we'll be happy to try those sorts of things as well. Well, that was one of the headlines, Stuart. The other one was the release of 13,500 residential aged care places and 775 short-term restorative care places in aged care approval rounds. $60 million in capital investment to support these new places as well. Brendan, once again, yes, 13,500 resi places is, is laudable. What they don't say is they didn't do any last year. So it's 13,500, if you like, over two years. Actually, over five years, not four, because last year they did none. And once again, if if you look at the, the demographics of the country, it's frightening, the growth in people who are going to need care. And as we all know, a place, a bed you get today... Is it bread you bring online in three or four years' time? Yeah, it takes time a long apply, time it, to go through local the government. The lead times to get a planning permit, get a builder, get the thing built and occupied is probably three to five years. Well, here's another headline for you as mm. well. I want your reaction to this one. Funding boost means close to 74,000 people will be able to access home care packages by mid-2022. Mm. Oh, but, but, but that's probably right. Mm. But, you know, that, that, that's still not meeting that currently there are 100,000 people on the waiting list. Forget about the people who are currently receiving a package. Mm. So, you know, you've got to keep it in the perspective of the total unmet demand that's currently being built up. And again, just, just to be, you know, I don't want to bag them uh, at every point. I mean, they're trying to do something and no one really appreciated the unmet demand in services uh, for the last 20 years because it was always driven by you will have a ticket to go uh, at a particular point in time. Now you get a ticket to go on a waiting list, so the, so the waiting list can actually be measured. And that, that's more frightening to, uh, to, to both sides of politics about how they're going to fund that in the future. Um, yeah, interesting, isn't it? Is this a bipartisan stand as well? Are I we seeing so. both yeah, sides? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so think, they've really got to get this sorted out, haven't they? They do. I think, look, I might be saying negative, and I'm not. What I'm saying is that clearly the penny is starting to drop in government circles about the, the, the problem we've got. As a, we've got some serious problems in this country, and one of them is how we're going to care for our older people. It's becoming very clear to us all that it can't be funded out of the public purse totally. 
and there must there's need for some serious work in looking at alternative funding models. And Stuart and I have been talking about this for a little while now, that the model is broken. Um, clearly the government, I think they tip in about 75% of the cash required to fund the current system and 40% of aged care facilities last year made a loss. Clearly, clearly, Brendan, unsustainable. If if that's the growth in the business that's making a loss, is, does that mean in five years' time it's 60% making a loss, does, which will mean that people are going to walk away from this sector and then it becomes really ugly. It really does. And that was yes. another thing that I saw, because yeah. just reading, just sort of just glancing over this um, the other night as Mr Morrison was um, letting forth in, at the federal capital, and I was just wondering with the number of people that they're putting into home care packages, whether that ultimately is indicative of government policy putting you guys out of work eventually, because theoretically the emphasis here is very much more on home care. And also I see that the leverage into the family home is being loosened as well. Are we looking, are they struggling with a different model here? No, I'm thinking the home care strategy is a good strategy. It is a good strategy. People want to stay at home. And we've had discussion before, wherever home is, be it a retirement village, be it in a caravan, be it in the burbs, people want to stay there. Do you know what the average length of stay of a person's on a package is? No. Have any idea? Stuart, do you have any no, idea? No, I don't. I'd say five, six Three years. Three years. Okay. And so, okay, that's fine. So what happens after that? Does that mean that after three years they've all passed? No, it doesn't. It means they need another form of care. Yeah. That's what it means. So it's okay throwing all this money into res- residential home care, but it begs the question... No matter how much money you throw to keep someone at home, there comes a day when they're at risk. Okay, let, let's yeah. just broaden that a little bit, Peter. Yeah. That currently the demand is for high-level packages, yes. Category 4 packages. There's not enough of them, so people have no option... But to go into care? To, other, than, other than to go into care. There'll always be a role for residential care facilities that will probably become more... Uh, dementia or palliative care Indeed. or or if you're intubated or, or some other... And, and you can see that thinking as well. I don't want you to can. interrupt and I don't want to interrupt your train of thought here, Stuart, but it looks like they're throwing some money into that sector as well. The mental yes. health and the palliative as well looks like they've identified that. Not as much yeah. money, but they're obviously going down that line yeah. as well. So, but so I we'll... see a positive, Stuart. The positive I see is there is no doubt retirement villages by their very nature, attend to people's physical, social, health and mental needs because they are a community. And we all know in, in retirement villages of these communities, socialisation of people has a great outcome against depression, it has a great outcome against uh, physical yeah, ailments. The loneliness, the boredom. All, all of that. So I think... Stuart, there's a great opportunity here for us as an industry in the retirement village sector is to say to government, we have the answers to your problems. The, there is another issue that was raised in the, in the um, speech last night, which they're talking about the pensioners' loan scheme. Now, the pensioners' loan scheme is a way you can... It's a, it's a reverse mortgage. Correct. Let's, let's be truthful yeah, about the reverse, that. Yeah, age-old reverse mortgage system. reverse mortgage funded by the p- public purse. Yeah. At this point in time, no provision for retirement, which don't offer a title to 
get part of that scheme. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, seriously, we need to do some work on that, Stuart. I'm not a fan of reverse mortgages for lots of reasons, but it is a way of unlocking capital to support people. But again, you, you can poor. see that they're obviously thinking about that model as well, though, would you not, uh, Peter? I mean, th- but, they seem to be looking at that already. They are, but it's only being offered to the burbs. Yep. You've got to have a, a torrent title that someone can place a mortgage over to protect their investment in your reverse mortgage. Yeah. That's no, an that, issue that, for that, us. That is, that is a good point. That's an issue that we need to address as an industry with government to say there's got to be a way, um, because there's no doubt that people who live in retirement villages, even though they don't have a title, they have serious equity in their property. Mm. And, it and, can it, be and it's interesting that mm. neither of us would favour a, re- a reverse mortgage system. It always seems to be a bit onerous for the consumer. Yeah, I would much rather and see someone a... downsize, yes. free up some capital by downsizing and invest the funds. And what what I'm thinking the government need to think about is, and they've already made some noises about it, is make it very attractive for people to downsize into a village environment or something like that free up some cash, and that cash doesn't count towards their income and assets mm. test so they don't lose their pension. Because as we discussed before mm. previously, people see that they're entitled to a pension as sacrosanct. Yeah. Uh, Can we cover yeah, a couple yeah. of other yeah. interesting Indeed. issues? But first of all, before we do, Stuart, um, the summary from Canberra was the eighteen nineteen budget will deliver the more choices for a longer life package which will support older Australians to live longer and be better prepared, healthier, more independent and connected to their communities. Would that's you, a good, oh, that's would a good you motherhood agree? statement. Mm. You, would, you would both agree yeah, with that? Yeah, yeah but, but certainly but, providing more places and more opportunities uh, to help to assist people ageing. Good. So, so yeah, well, I, I agree with that. Let's go on to your next points then, Stuart, because we're keeping Let's an eye on the clock. Let's talk about my age care. Which, which <laughs> again, is. came up for some treatment it, as your well. Your old chestnuts, it, it is. <laughs> well, there, there's two aspects to this that um, we've stated over the years, but my age care the is not user-friendly. Let's talk about what my age care is. Well, it's basically the portal into these services, yeah. is so it So it's not? an internet-based thing. Correct. It's a to, web-based. Yeah. It's a web-based portal into which you yes. theoretically can easily access yes. a number of these services and a government-sanctioned yes. initiatives. And, and the theory behind that is the government would rather deal with you through a computer screen than through a face. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah, because you can do it all at your own leisure in your, in, the, in your own home. And, yes, it's cheaper. You don't yeah. have to have the labour. Yeah. And, and, and we miss the, 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 the human contact. Yeah. So it's been a bugbear for many, many people, it and it's been mentioned in this program on a number of occasions that I've been here. So now they're throwing $60 million at it. $60 million more dollars at it. Well, so it's in a couple of areas. They're, they're spending $60 million to, to try and get it to be more user-friendly. Simplify and navigate. They're establishing uh, hubs of expertise, 30 hubs, if I remember correctly, around the country yes. to actually deliver a face-to-face service to people. So all of a sudden... 30 hubs in a country the size of the USA. Yes, so that's, you know... That's you, a challenge. You might get... <laughs> well, you might have in Victoria one in Melbourne, one in Geelong and one in... Bendigo, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Um, so there's three. So we've taken 10%. Uh, New South Wales might get five. One in Dubbo. Yeah, yeah, one in Dubbo, certainly. So it's not a lot of resource to it to say that 
people are going to be able to get face-to-face, but at least it's recognition of that continuing problem that they are supposed to be making the, uh, the form, the assets and income test form, easier. I'm yet to see a... 37-page document. Well, they've got $7 million earmarked to go out and do some testing on that whole interface thing. Yes. So there's a $60 million bucks and there's got another $7 million somewhere that they're going to use to see whether we can navigate it, and they're going to be testing that. That's a great idea. I mean, if they can make so if they're going, if, I mean, our view is, or my view, I'll, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to speak on behalf of Peter, but my view is it's been a dud since day one and they should abandon it and get back to people. Shuck it out. Get rid of it. Well, we are a people-based industry, and people want to talk to you. They don't understand the complexities of what we're about to do. And there's some huge decisions which you're making in that portal as well. I mean, you know, you want some advice. I mean, you can ultimately get it, With a lot of of emotional stress. Correct. Mm. And, you know, there are a couple of examples here where um, people are dealing with older parents and they're trying to get into the portal. I must get them into the program. Mm. and have a bit of a natter because there's some very real and heartbreaking stories about parents that are collapsing health-wise very, very quickly, what to do, how to do. All of a sudden you're confronted with this portal. It doesn't seem to work, and you think, my goodness, where to from here? You're 10 clicks away from your answer. Mm. And the theory is more than two clicks, you never go any further. And the reality is if you tick the wrong box at the wrong time, you'll get a very unexpected result, which could penalise you for some time. It's not that easy. No. Once, you, once you're put in a box, uh, it's not that easy to actually get out of that box. Mm. Just checking the time, guys, because we are running out of it today. We could talk about this, I'm sure, for hours, and we probably will over coming weeks. Um, $40 million to go toward urgent building and maintenance work for aged care providers in regional, rural and remote areas. Certainly, the, the Commonwealth has always been idea. committed to mm. trying to support regional and remote areas. Is that areas? Ken White here having yes. a little bit yes. of an impact? Yes, because yeah, ab- I, absolutely. And yeah. I, I also see that there's $33 million to go into chronic shortage of palliative care in nursing homes. Yeah, not quite certain what they have in mind to support palliative care. Now, currently there are there is support available, certainly in the metro areas. Well, I've, I've drilled a bit down there, Stuart. It, what it's about is supporting those agencies to support us in. Oh, okay. So it's to give money to people like Peninsula Hospice. Yes. To support us, and that's a great idea. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 they do that now, but they, but they need to expand. And they're right? wonderful but, people. But thirty-three million dollars. Yeah. I'm thinking. I can. I get it. I understand mm. it. But is thirty-three million dollars enough? I'm not qualified to answer that. I wouldn't know what that looks like in their space. Okay. It sounds like a lot of money. Doesn't it? But how far but really, does it go? But again, if you, if you nationalise... It's a million each a year. Yeah. So if you nationalise that, yeah. $33 million, Peter, with all due respect, I can see where they're going with it, and that's good. Mm. But $33 million nationally? Mm. What is that, for a year, two but, years, four years? But I think it's a bit like a lot of things that government do. They're at least acknowledging there is a, an issue... And so at least put it on the radar that we need to give them some money. It may not be the panacea, but at least it's a start. It is a start. And, yeah. and I think, you know, to their credit, that, mm. you know, that, that is something that our, our tax dollars should go to. And you haven't mentioned the money for the uh, mental health in no. residential care, and, which and is and very again, important. That's, yeah. a, that's another very large component here as mm. well, Peter, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I think that's well overdue. Yeah. We used to have our dementia supplement, which sort of sort of sort of the same thing. So that's that's. I don't know how it works, Stuart. Are you going to no, hear no, how, how it works? We haven't seen the detail on no. that aspect. But that's yet. A, that's yeah, well needed. Mm. 
From time to time, you two do catch up with the minister, Ken yes. White, and I'm just wondering whether you will be tapped to give him your initial reactions. Is he going to get together with the sector at some stage, do you think? I'm sure he will be out, um, yes, promoting the budget, no doubt, but we, we were attempting to have a meeting with him, but unfortunately his timetable and his diary is very full. Yeah, so, so, so that it. was disappointing. It was. would have been nice to talk to We were having a talk to Ken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but anyway, we couldn't pull That's, it off. Um, Can you see his fingerprints over this? Can you absolutely. Have you seen some yeah. themes that are coming through here that you've you've learnt and, and got to know through knowing you know, him? If you remember when Ken did a broadcast with us, some of these things were topics he spoke about on the day, mm. about communities, about starting a new career in, yeah. in older age. And he and, talked about regional areas and he's... Ma- we, yeah. Remember we talked about um, consumer-directed care in, and he thought, and deregulating the market, and he thought it was a bad idea because most of the country towns he visits, the local hospital with the aged care attached is the cornerstone to their area, and yes. he would hate to see those towns die because we consolidated into, a, in Victoria, like a place like Hamilton rather than being at St. Arnold or something else. Yes, like that. Yeah. exactly. So... Yeah. So you can certainly see Ken's touch to that and, and Ken made a point of also explaining to us that whatever he wants to try and do, he will talk with the opposition. So they try and go in lockstep on that. And, and again, I think that's a, that's a good thing for policy direction. One, one of the things in the budget that I was particularly thrilled about was the Murray-Darling Basin, how both sides of politics got together and agreed, this is what we need to do for the good of a country. Who would have thought in a modern era that, that we could achieve that? Indeed, but surely the legacy, uh, our older generation and our um, elderly population needs a little bit of care and support as well. And so if that's bipartisan, that must mm. surely be yes. a, a move in the right direction. So just quickly, gentlemen, to summarise then, Peter Nilsson, a tick of approval here for this budget. Uh, oh, it's you're go, certainly going in the right direction, but there's a lot more work, a lot of more heavy lifting to do to use their terms over the next few years and what, what frustrates me with budgets and it's becoming a trend is they announce programs to be delivered in 2024 which is two more election cycles who knows what's going to happen in the that next was certainly a different <laughs> trend last night uh well, yes. sorry tuesday night that's um so it's certainly looking over the horizon but gee i don't know politics is a very unpredictable game and a and the a, lot could fr- happen. a lot could happen. So do these things actually happen? I don't know. But at least it's trying to set out a plan. Yeah, and strategy. I think, yeah. You know, so that, that's worth yeah. at least acknowledging. The, the practicality of delivering it in 2024, who knows what happens by then. Well, as I say, I would like to see a debate, and it's long overdue, of um, the, the sense of entitlement people have about the government should pay for this. We don't haven't had that debate... There's hints of it here where they're talking about, you know, unlocking, well, reverse mortgages. There's hints of saying you guys need to start paying in your own way. But they're not coming out on the front foot Mm. and saying let's have a debate about what funding looks like. And at the moment it's 75% of government funding. Um, That's the big fear I've got is no one's brave enough because of the short election cycles. No one's brave enough to have the debate because... Um, things like uh, means testing the family home is a sure way of getting out of government. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so Gentlemen, I can see Paula. She's tapping her watch. She's in the background. We've got to leave it there. But to Peter Nilsson, thank you very much indeed. Stuart Shaw, thank you very Thanks, much Brandon. indeed. Thanks, Peter. You're yeah. listening to The Age Stage on FM. We'll take a break and we'll be back with a lot more. This is FM, and you're listening to The Age Stage. Thank you very much indeed. Great to have your company today. I'm Brendan Telford. With me, of course, is your presenter, Paula Dunn. The Age Stage, made possible by the Village Baxter, the Village Glen, and Encore Living for that regional alternative. Paula, we're up to introducing our next guest. Yes, yes, we have Alan Sheffield with us, Brendan. And Alan is the co-founder and uh, chief innovation officer of my, at My DNA. Yes. So it sounds really exciting. So welcome, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. You're welcome. So tell us a little bit about what my DNA means and what what is it about? Yeah. So look, um, yeah. Look, we're in the world of DNA testing and genetics. So taking a simple mouse swab and from that piece of, um, I guess, that simple sample, we can um, look at a whole lot of. We're interested in a whole lot of genetic factors that are important for people to. So really aiming at helping them make more informed decisions about their health, um, their wellness and their lifestyle. And, um, Sounds you know, fascinating. So, Sounds yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so all based on their DNA profile. Um, there's all of these wonderful insights we can start to um, have interesting conversations with people about. So we're go- we're talking about um, diets today, with uh, especially in, at older with older people. And yes. um, so, how do, how does that connect with um, the DNA swab? What can yeah, you tell so people like, about that? It's really interesting, I guess. Um, so there's there's really all I mean. We've looked at studies from all over the world about how your genetics influences, um, you know, uh, I guess weight. You know, people that are more prone to be putting on weight, mm. and also who people who are trying to lose weight. So. Mm. There are about seven different markers that we look at that have been shown to be really important and can help people um, either uh, get better information about how to lose weight. You know, an example of that is that we look at things like um, appetite and hunger. So, you know, there are a lot of people that, um, you know, even though they would eat a normal standard meal, they tend not to feel full. I don't know whether you you fall into that bucket, but there are many people that, you know, they sort of finish their main meal, but they tend to still, you know, there's a signal to the brain that doesn't actually tell them that they're full. So they tend to keep eating mm. and either go for more portions or snack and graze throughout the day. Or Yeah, uh, that, that's interesting because I understand what you're saying because it doesn't matter how small a meal I have or, or what I eat, I must have, I, I feel like I need to have just a tiny uh, whether it's a mint or something sweet afterwards. And, and so what you're saying is that Possibly is a DNA effect. Yeah, yeah, it could be a. It could be basically there's a signal from your, you know, your, your stomach to your brain that tells you that you're full. Mm. And some people um, get that signal, and there are other people that don't. And so they tend not to, even though they're probably eating enough for the day, they mm. tend to keep snacking and eating. And obviously, if you eat more, you know, you eat too much, then you, you know, you tend to put on weight. So. You know, what, that's just an example of one of the insights you can get that can basically help you then work out what strategies you can put in place to mitigate that. And there are studies that have shown, as an example, that if you go on, I guess, a higher-protein diet, mm-hmm. then that's going to keep you fuller for longer. Mm-hmm. And so if your problem is, you know, appetite, that you overeat, then, uh, you know, that can keep you fuller and therefore you tend to stay within your, you know, desired calories for the day. 
Alan, um, Alan, Brendan here. Uh, my DNA. Why are you getting into this particular area, or does my DNA does it have relevance across a number of of, of insights and what we're doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, look. You know, the, when we're looking at genetics and how it looks at all sorts of things, and this whole area of how it, how our genetics affects our sort of day to day lifestyle is really exploding in terms of research. So, you know, we started in the area of giving advice about how your genetics affects the way you respond to different medications. So, you know, we all know that two people taking the same medication can have very different responses. Yes, absolutely. You know, some people get side effects and other people the medication doesn't work. Mm. And so that's actually, we've been doing that for seven or eight years. And in that time, um, there's been a lot of research that's come out about how your genetics can impact uh, your nutrition and your wellness. And that's, you know, and that's where, we're you know, nutrition and, and the diet really comes to what foods can we eat. So the genetics gives us insights into how does the body process fat, how mm. does it process carbohydrates and protein, and that sort of information, when you're armed with that, can help you make better decisions about what sort of diet you might go on. Alan, these insights that you're getting at MyDNA, are they subject to ethnicity as well? Are you seeing a variation across different ethnic groups? For instance, we're told through studies in Auckland that the Tongan people have the greatest muscle mass of any peoples on earth. Oh, are, really? Yeah, yeah. Are you are you seeing um, keys to ethnicity here, explaining weight loss, retention, fat burning, efficiency yeah, of muscle? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's absolutely. You can see, depending on where people come from um, and their ancestry, you can see that those genetic traits follow through. So whether you're more prone to putting on weight or obesity for some people, and certainly there's some, you know, ethnicities in New Zealand that are, you know, got a much higher... Um, uh, uh, I guess incidents or issues with weight, yeah, um, and you know these things are genetic. So uh, basically, you inherit them from your parents, and and you know whether it's um, muscle power and how how easy it is for you to put on muscle when you go to the gym, or whether it's related to how well you break down fat. There is a genetic reason for some of those things. I mean, mm. e- even looking at you know different families, you can see that there are some families that are much leaner than others and their kids tend to be much leaner not all of them but you know if they've got the right genes then they'll you know they might be more lean and therefore they've got could have the gene that means they break down fat much more efficiently um than than i guess another family so it is hereditary and we sort of know this and now we're sort of learning well now that we know this what can we do about it And, and part of our role at my dna is looking at all the evidence and all the studies and trying to see well what can we say and it turns out there's a lot of actionable advice and it's all uh, got a scientific basis to it, which is just terrific. So you you would think that companies like your Weight Watchers or your Jenny Craigs or any of those sorts of organisations could in, perhaps in the future offer a simple DNA test before they allocate a, a, a diet to yeah, a person. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really going from, I mean, a lot of diets that we try or we hear of or you know, I mean, uh, very much trial and error. You yes. know, so you know, if you ask anyone that's gone on a weight loss journey, they've tried this diet and then they tried that diet and then they got they they dropped you know they dropped carbohydrates out of their diet and then they went on a low calorie diet. So we know that one size doesn't fit all. Um, and then you know, when you can find something that's more, I guess, suited to your body type, then you tend to get better results. And and so what this is all about is going from this. I guess, trial and error approach to 
a much more tailored and personalised mm. approach to what that eating plan could be. So, um, so sorry, yeah. Alan. So as I get older, then essentially my DNA can basically counsel me on what I should be eating, what food types, and so on. But you're also going to be able to refine a wellness package for me as well in terms of what I should be doing as far as exercise is concerned and what my propensity might be for storing fats or, or burning them up. That's right. Absolutely. So we're we're looking. You know, we're trying to take. You know, whatever's in the literature from a scientific point of view and say, well, now that, you know, these are some things that you can learn about yourself, and then, you know, if you are, it does get harder to lose weight, you know, the older you get, but, you know, if you're going to go to the gym and you're going to do weight-bearing exercises, then let's make sure you're doing the right type of training so it's as efficient as possible, um, that it's sort of suited to your genetic makeup, and certainly in terms of what foods you eat, if you're going to be conscious about, you know, what you're eating and to Mm -hmm. try and maintain weight or lose weight, then let's just make sure it's individualised to, to you. And, yeah. and, that's, and that's really the whole idea. And, and, you know, there are studies that we've found that show that, you know, people getting much better outcomes by following that advice. And it's, it's not a quick fix, you know. It's not sort of saying go on this quick fix sort of fad diet. It's sort of something that you can do for the rest of your life. It's quite um, exciting, though, yeah. Alan, to think that, you know, when you look at the, you know, the rate of people having surgeries like gastric banding, uh, and, and yeah. you know yep. situations like that. That if if those sorts of if people looking at that could have a, a a DNA swab done and then research and find out what sort of thing is really suitable, is that going to really solve their issue, or is it simply that they need to drop carbs and and have more protein? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's really uh, exciting. Absolutely. I mean, those sort of procedures are incredibly expensive and oh. obviously quite traumatic. Yes, you and know, and and. Um, you know, I mean, for some people that still might be the only option, but at least if you can understand what might work for you better, then you're more likely to stick to it. In fact, there was a really interesting study um, in the UK where, you know, it was about that hunger and appetite gene that I mentioned where what they took a whole lot of people that, you know, were overweight um, and then they told them their genetic results mm. and then they sort of measured, you know, before they told them the genetic results and after and um, they noticed that the people that once they knew their genetic results tended to eat a lot less, so they were much mm. more mindful of their portion control. Yes, um, so like know, a placebo almost. There's a genetic reason yeah. for overeating. Yeah, it's not yeah. just you know, it's just not an emotional thing. Yes, um, and um, so therefore, you know, they've been shown that that's been very, very effective. Fascinating. Um, so, so this is more sort of preventative stuff, isn't it, rather than being the panel shop sort of fixing us up and getting us back out into our lifestyle. You're basically anticipating where we need to go. Could you imagine, Alan, then the future whereby you come in and start genetically engineering us to make sure that we are on the straight and narrow? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, but I think we'll, you know, I mean, you know, I think it's around our whole, uh, I guess, mission is around trying to give people trying to empower people with the knowledge so, you know, that they can make better and more informed decisions when it comes to their health. So, mm. you know, a lot of the advice that they're following um, might be just based on how the average person responds or what they might have, a friend of them, you know, was very successful on a particular diet. Yes. Um, but based on their, you know, their particular mm. um, conditions and their health, any health issues, you know, this is something that they can at least know that, um, has, you know, might work better for them. Um, and then obviously depending on, you know, if they've got diabetes or other mm. health-related issues, they should discuss that with their doctor and try and try and come up with a plan that's, one, practical, 
and sustainable that, uh, for the long term. So, Alan, where would we go to find out if we wanted to have a DNA test done? Where do yeah, we well, go? So, yeah, look, so, I mean, look, we've got a number of participating pharmacies that are trained up in the area. Okay. Um, in especially around, I've had a look at, um, there's quite a few in, you know, in terms of your, the customers, you know, around Mount Eliza and Seaford, um, Somerville, yep. Frankston. I'm just so looking at a few. Could we just go to a website, your website? Yeah, so if you, if you go to our website, www.mydna.life. Yep. And they can find a pharmacy that's closest to them. Okay. Um, or they can just order it online, but yes. they can also discuss it with their local pharmacy and see if it's right for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's then and just then just a matter of a simple swab, I guess, from the inside of the yeah. mouth. Yeah. It literally takes ten seconds. They they can do the swab there in the pharmacy, and then effectively the results will be sent back to Fantastic. the pharmacist or the or, or themselves. And most of these pharmacies are also people interested in the medication-related testing. They can mm. they can ask the pharmacist about that too. That might be relevant, and they can do the lot. Yeah. Alan Sheffield, who is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of My DNA, thank you very much indeed uh, for speaking with us today on the H stage, Alan. Thanks, Alan. You're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, thank you very much indeed. This is the H stage broadcasting from studios here in Mornington. Great to have your company on 98.7, 98.3. We take a break, and then uh, Paul is going to be introducing us to Dr. Stephanie Hodson on the other side of the break. Stick around. So welcome back to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues to do with older Australians. And we have a special guest for you now, Dr. Stephanie Hodson. And Dr. Stephanie Hodson is National Manager of the Veterans and Veterans Families Counselling Service. Welcome, Dr. Stephanie Hodson. Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me here today. You're welcome. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about your service and what you offer. So the Veterans and Veterans Families Counselling Service is actually a legacy of our Vietnam veterans. So they fought for this service Mm -hmm. to provide support to veterans, um, anyone with it. It's now today anyone with one day full-time service and their families across their lifespan. So it's a real acknowledgement, the fact that military service comes with inherent risk and that that can cause injuries and that some of those injuries impact not just the the veteran or the serving member, but also the family and and over a number of years. Mm -hmm. So effectively we provide individual and group counselling as well as... um, uh, services like suicide prevention programs and training and um, really importantly um, some well-being services in order to try and keep people healthy as well. Yes and I would imagine PTSD which is post-traumatic stress disorder is, is a you know is quite rampant in veterans returning from overseas duty. Um, definitely for our Vietnam veteran cohort mm. um, post-traumatic stress disorder was um, one of the conditions that many of them have now lived with. Um, depending on the nature of the actual deployment, I'm ex-military myself. So sometimes you do something which you get to do, uh, even though it's tough work, um, you, you will actually uh, probably come out feeling really that you've got to use your skills and actually build your confidence. But no matter what, if we send people into difficult situations mm-hmm. where we ask them to do um tough work, whether it's a disaster relief and having to work with dead bodies or they're working in a situation where there is conflict, 
it can result in injuries, whether it be depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. And in fact, we need to provide care to those individuals as quickly as we can and ongoing if needed. Stephanie, you mentioned um, the earlier theatres, uh, for instance, the Vietnam vets who were suffering considerably in this area. Are you seeing a contrast with your work with them and, say, the military that are coming out of the more modern theatres like Afghanistan and or the Middle East? Um, most definitely. In the sense, though, that um, our Vietnam veteran cohort um, came back at a time when we really didn't understand mental health the way we do today, mm. or even just more general, the impact and the injury that can occur. So the Vietnam veteran cohort came up back in the 70s, but we don't start to deliver services like the Veterans and Veterans Family Service until the 80s, or the PTSD programs, the treatment, big treatment programs, programs that emerge. So it's almost a decade for that cohort before yeah. we really start to seriously give them some of the services that make a difference. It's been a real mission for us with the current um, cohorts to make sure that it's not a decade before they get support. So we are, because we know we get better outcomes with early intervention. What about the older theatres then? I mean, are you seeing veterans from World War Two who probably had no services, just did the stiff upper lip? And what about the Korean theatre as mm -hmm. well? What, what we actually know is across your lifespan, there are these um, transition points in your life that put you at greater risk. And most definitely, it is never too late to come in for support or treatment. So uh, what we are, we still find that Vietnam veterans and some of the very older cohorts, um, especially as they reach a big transition point is retirement, um, will actually find their whole life has changed and maybe they've been so busy in their job that they've kept, you know, they've, they've worked through their anxiety or their um, the nightmares. They've kept them under control actually by working. I mean, uh, that's how they've managed um, distress and not had to think about what they actually did mm. in these conflicts. When yeah. you then have time to sit, to think, to ponder, to reflect, that is sometimes when it all comes to the fore. And I know in my own work that um, some of the most rewarding work I've actually got to do when I actually was working as a clinician, not the national manager, was actually with those veterans who've come forward and said, uh, late, late, very much late, you know, 60s, 70s, saying, this should be the fun time of my life. I should now be spending this with my grandchildren and my, my wife. And all I can do is think about what happened. Yes, because that's the that's the nature of the beast of PTSD, isn't it? It knows no yeah. time boundaries at all. You can have an experience when you're yeah. quite young, and it can come back and haunt you, you know, when you're much later on in life. And and it's why we we actually have what we call an episodic care model, so yeah. that it, the the bottom line is you can bring the symptoms under control, and and the. As time has gone on, we've got better and better at different techniques to help people get back onto an equal um, equal um, balance and be able to do what they want to be able to do in life. So the focus is counselling is saying, right, what is it that you want out of this and what do we need to achieve? And you work towards that. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're in your 30s or your 60s or even later in life, it's still just as relevant. We want everyone to be living a meaningful life and being connected and enjoying their families. Yes, yes. And it's why, yeah, and it's why this is quite a unique service because there's not many services that are available to people that uh, we know that people will transition in and out, that we'll have a period where everything is going really well, but then there's a period, something big happens in your life, you lose a partner, something happens, yes. and, and 
all that uh, good work and resilience, you've got yeah, to rebuild it. Exactly. And so how could people get in contact with your service, Stephanie? So, yeah, look, the service is available 24-7. So mm -hmm. people can also ring late at night and have a chat to one of our counsellors yes. on 1-800-011-046. Or they can visit the VVCS website, which is one of those simple uh, vvcs.gov.au. And that will tell you about the services and how to come into care. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Stephanie Hodson, and uh, perhaps we can talk to you again in the future. Happy to, and thank you for taking the time. You're and I welcome. just really encourage any veteran who needs support, uh, reach out because there is support there for you and your family. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. And we thank all our guests today for this special edition of the Age Stage. We certainly wish uh, Brody well as well. We hope we that do. he'll be back uh, next week. Yes. I've been sitting in today. And, and of course, uh, the Age Stage made possible by our friends at the Village Baxter, the Village Glen, and On Call Living for that regional alternative. And of course, uh, we must thank our, our guests, Dr. Alan Sheffield from My DNA. Found that fascinating. And of course, mm. just then, Dr. Stephanie Hodson of the Veterans and Veterans Families Counseling Service. Plus, of course, our regulars, Peter Nilsson and Stuart Shaw as well. We thank them very much indeed. Thanks it's been great sitting in with you today, uh, Paula. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Thank you for stepping in for Brody. yeah. And we'll see you next week. We from will. All, from all of us here at the Age Stage, have a super week. See you next time. Bye. Bye.